Hello, listeners. Our love is your love this week. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, we are discussing Whitney Houston's 1998 album, My Love is Your Love. First time we've ever discussed Whitney Houston on Turntables and Tea. And it's our third season, so... But uh, I'm excited to be doing it. Uh, She's always a good artist to listen to and discuss, if you ask me. Agreed. Agreed. You know, outside of the hot teacup that is her life. Yeah. (laughs) uh, That that was her life, you know. Uh, She's always a great artist. I'm always interested in what she does. And uh, when what time period in her life it is done, because we see many different forms of her throughout life. Oh, yeah, she was definitely a bit of a chameleon over um, her career. Uh, but um, before we do that, one announcement. Uh, if you are now listening to us on YouTube, um, thank you for that. We are now available on there in both podcast and video form. So that's very exciting. We're going to have a lot of stuff coming up there. Uh, everything, our whole catalog is available now. Um but uh, we hope that will uh, increase our reach because YouTube is such a huge platform. So, yeah, man, I think it's very exciting for us. Sooner or later, you might even see our faces. You never yes. know. <laughs> Sooner or later, you, you we never know. But uh, we um we we like to be radio faces. Is how we <laughs> like to do it. But <laughs> yes, but. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel at Turntables and Tea Podcasts. So you'll get everything that you get if you're already subscribed anyway. And of course, subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Spotify, Apple, Amazon, we're on all of them. And uh, also our social media, follow us on there. You'll see the bio, um, the links in our show notes for you to go do that to get all of our latest episodes very exciting stuff because we've got a lot more coming for you we're not gonna we don't we, we're not stopping <laughs> we're not stopping no sir no but uh now uh, down to business of uh, whitney houston my love is your love so uh yeah she had many seasons of her life and uh every era had something new and um this era came at an interesting kind of crossroads where um, throughout much of the 90s, Whitney Houston's um, singles were often on movie soundtracks. She was a movie ballad queen throughout much of the decade. But um, by 1997, her uh, label had Clive Davis, who um, was kind of a Spengali, according to many, in terms of really... uh, That was his pet project in many ways, an artist that he could mold. But he wrote a letter to her in 1997 saying, you have not recorded an album in seven years. And uh, it's weird to think about, but in fact, the last proper studio album was 1990's On Your Baby Tonight. After that, all the songs were movie soundtracks. But at the same time, that's kind of messed up because of the fact that it kind of makes it sound like she hadn't been working when she certainly had been. It's so silly. A preacher's wife was pretty much all her. Yes, it you was know? all her. It yeah, was uh, all her. So, so I, it's silly. I read that. And I was like, man, I'm with you on this Van Gali. Clive Davis, yeah. take him or leave him. I'll probably leave him. But yeah. <laughs> it's Same yeah. thing with Bodyguard, you know? It was predominantly her. Yeah, um, and even Waiting to Exhale. I mean, not all her, her, but yeah. 
she contributed and she contributed the biggest hits off of it and it did really well so i'm just not seeing the issue um the profits didn't really hurt i'm sure clive so yeah it's it's not like she was a hermit inside this no. either you know it raises a question for me and that is why take her on a more of a R&B hip hop turn on this album and and I I always come back to Clive Davis on this and think that he thought that he could have this giant hit album because he could get Whitney to to be shoehorned into a different style in my opinion well so that actually is an interesting point because um about 10 years prior to this uh, when Whitney Houston was pretty infamously booed when her name was announced as a nomination at the Soul Train Awards because um that audience felt that she had become too white like they called her Whitey Houston because she made this uh pop adult contemporary music it wasn't R&B or black enough according to um some of those listeners and that backlash really hurt her very deeply uh really yeah i like it, in the age of like i'm your baby tonight and stuff like right that before i'm your baby tonight wow and that was what inspired her to do i'm your baby tonight she decided to make a more overt r&b album and it was a successful album not quite as successful as her first two but it did very well but um and after the bodyguard, she really did actually lean more into straight up R and B with certainly with waiting to exhale. And then you have the preacher's wife, which was predominantly gospel. So by that point in time, she wasn't as much courting the pop market, but of course R and B was pop music um, by this point, especially it was very prominent and uh, um, this really was the first time that she had hip-hop influences in her sound overtly on an album with My Love Is Your Love. She recorded the album over seven weeks in August and September of 1998 and, uh, I mean, worked with some of the young current people in R&B and hip-hop to put out this album. And I, I think at least some of that had to do with her. Some of it... There's some moments here that, like, they're the people who she'd worked with before, proven hit makers, they're back. But there's also some new people who are also proven hit makers who are producing and writing on this album. I'm still blown away that, like, I Want to Dance with Somebody is a divisive track for... It was. And that's, that it is mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. Yeah. On one note, it's mind-blowing that I never knew that there was this backlash there. I you know I always pictured Whitney as as I don't know this if you're talking about the Soul Train community there like her she was a champion of those people you know of of that of that I mean they're they're dance tunes I don't know that's that's wild for me that's wild for yeah. me yeah it it is especially for a dance tune but uh it, it, I mean some have said she never really actually recovered from that because she felt rejected by her people by her community and that was painful for her I, I can only imagine yeah. I always thought I always thought she was heralded as one of the top divas uh you know in, in the black community period especially growing up that's wild yeah it's very interesting um because 
And a lot of times she wasn't always a critic's favorite either. They often compared her unfavorably to both other R&B divas and pop divas. She was compared unfavorably to the big ones like Madonna, Janet, even Paula Abdul. And then the R&B singers like your Anita Bakers or going back Aretha Franklin's. Like she often, there were some who looked down on her in comparison to those ladies, despite her great commercial success. Mm, that's wild. Yeah. But she she can hit on both sides. She can belt she like can. Aretha and she can do a pop song at, at the top of the charts like like the rest of them. I mean, I can see where you might draw parallels, but only in my eyes as a positive comparison. It, I didn't expect to have this conversation, but, but like, that's mind-blowing to me. Yeah, it's very crazy to think that this ever happened. It really is. Yeah. Um, But she did make the album. It was done pretty quickly, but they were ready to go. It was released in November, late November of 98. And uh, it, um, it, uh, in the U.S., it debuted at number 13 on the Billboard 200. It looked like a pretty packed week for new releases. Uh, and um, But uh, that was kind of low for her, but it was a steady seller. It was on the charts for over the year and had some major hits, and it was an even bigger success in Europe, this album. And that was reflected in her tour for it in 1999. Uh, it was the highest-grossing arena tour in Europe that year. Um, the U.S. leg, she decided to do smaller venues for a change. There were a few dates that were canceled, and they, that did not give her good press. She uh, got some backlash for that. Uh, some of the cancellations were pretty last minute, and it just fueled rumors about what she was doing off stage in terms of drug use and all of that. But, um... At the end of the day, the album was still considered a success, successful enough for her Arista to re-sign her after the album's release cycle had ended to a $100 million deal. She was still considered a very valuable asset at that point, 15 years into her career. I asked these next two questions with much due respect, but I, I need to know. Was she married to Bobby right now? Yes. And and I'll ask the next one, but they pretty much go hand in hand. So she was using drugs at this point. Uh, yeah, uh, and the uh, common misconception she she'd been using drugs since she was a teenager. Understood, but from what I've read, it got pretty. Uh, it it took a hardcore track when Bobby came into the picture. From well, what I understand, that that's the common perception, but um. They, they were definitely a codependent couple, but interestingly, she introduced him to hard drugs, actually. He was a, oh, he was a booze hound, and but she, she, um, yeah, she brought that into that. But this was the point in time when I think the public image was just, it was starting to really come off the rails and it wasn't being hidden anymore. Gotcha. At least not well. Do you th <laughs> is it perceived that those cancellations were because of of these problems or yes these... okay heard that yes it is so um yeah that was kind of where things were at so, and um i mean really the tabloids and her it really got bad in the following decade in a lot of ways this album is the end of an era of the whitney houston 
pop era. Like, these are her last huge hits on this album. Um, she didn't quite reach this height again after this. Like, she still sold okay because she was Whitney Houston. Yeah. But in terms of actual hits, this is the end of her on the charts. But, I mean, 15 years is a damn good chart run. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, but I can see why. Um, as far as, as this album goes, compared to her body of work, in my opinion. But, well, <laughs> we'll see. It's it's a different album for Whitney Houston, but uh, it was her most critically well-received album ever, actually. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it. I do think that she successfully updated her sound, at least... At times, certainly, but uh, yeah. I mean, with that being said, let's get into it. I'm ready to dive into this bad boy. Let's do it. Yeah. So the album opens with "It's Not Right, But It's Okay." This song was written and produced by Rodney Jerkins, aka Dark Child. He was a an up and comer who um was just he was just getting started. He had one of the biggest hits of 1998 with Brandy and Monica's "The Boy Is Mine." And uh, he still makes hits to this day. He did hits for SZA just this past year. So he is still going. Um, But uh, he did this with his team. And this is a little dance song where she is telling off her cheating lover. And uh, she has a bite here that she really hadn't before. Not quite the soaring vocals you might expect, but a vengeance. And... uh, I think it really sells the song. She plays this part well. And, uh, I mean, I think it's one of her best singles ever. Um, Interestingly, the Thunderpuss edit of the song also got a lot of radio and MTV play. I do prefer the album version. I think it's just held up better and sounds more modern in comparison to that version. You can tell that's very of the 90s. Um... And uh, this was the second or third single, depending on what we're going to consider singles. But it was a it was a success. Um, number four on the Hot 100, top forty hit in seventeen other countries. Um, and this is the one song they actually really went out of their way to showcase from this album in her um biopic. I want to dance with somebody. And I think they illuminated it well in the film. Because she was saying that this wasn't about her real life as far as when this album was coming out, right? Even though we felt this bite, especially in this narrative, the yeah, the word on the street is this is all fictional, no matter how many parallels you can <laughs> draw to my own life, correct? Yeah, like she, even though like it was known that he had run around with other women, but he's also said that she had affairs too. I, I dig the narrative on this one. I dig the music box sort of glockenspiel. I didn't even realize Rodney Jenkins did the boy's mind. This has a really boy's mind feel to the beat. Um, that might just be his his style. It for an opener, it sets a little bit monotone for me. Like it it at five minutes, it's it really uh, it really never takes off off for me. Also, I, I'm looking as it, I'm looking at it as an opener as well, and it I feel like there's tracks that are on this album that could have opened this album in a strong, strong Whitney hit. Where I, 
I, in my opinion, I didn't get that as much as I wanted to on this first one. I think you might be in the minority. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely in the minority. From what you just said, I'm definitely in the minority. Yes. It, this is one of the ones where, like, I went back a bunch of times. It was like, man, I really, like, I love Whitney Houston. I get down. I've, I've always loved her body of work. But it's like, I don't know. This one, I just can't, I can't get behind all the way. It, it just it ends up feeling monotone to me. When I know her body of work is so vibrant. I think that's what especially as an opener, strikes me the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, I do kind of, for a dance song, it definitely isn't quite as vibrant as like, I want to dance with somebody or even I'm your baby tonight. It's more subdued, but I think it works for her um, at this, in this landscape of the late 90s and what we were hearing. I think it works for her. And um, that somewhat more subdued vibe is continued a bit on the next track, Heartbreak Hotel. Um, this is a collaboration with uh, Kelly Price and Faith Evans, two um, R&B singers who came about in the 90s. And it was produced by a Danish duo called Soul Shock and Carlin. They had made hits for both Brandy and Monica. So this is definitely Whitney Houston um going with the trends on this song it's it's very clear they were trying to make a hit and uh it's another tune about infidelity but it's much more it, it's more mellow than the previous song either it's it's more mellow than even the previous track it's not really a dance song it's a breezy mid-tempo um and uh this was technically the second single but really the lead single from the album and uh it was a success. It made it the number two on the Hot 100, um, but not as big elsewhere. The only other country that even made it into the top 10 was France. Uh, and it isn't one of her biggest hits in terms of streaming today, but this one's always going to be special to me because it was the first Whitney Houston song I ever heard, actually. Okay. So uh, pretty special to me. And I like hearing all these ladies sing. I think they play off of each other very well. They're all powerhouses, but they rein it in appropriately and don't try to outdo each other. And I've always really liked this song. Yeah, I love all three voices here. Um, I think this could have easily been a mismatch. And really, all three voices come forward on their own and add to the whole piece, and I dig that. Um, again, we're still stuck in this mid-tempo heartbreak song here and as far as the album goes tempo wise even though this track is way fuller to me than the first track as far as composition i just feel like the album hasn't got on its feet yet i dig this track i'm not saying i don't i i really do but as far as a pacing for this album I'm still wanting some more Whitney, if that makes sense here. You know, I'm still looking to hear. I'm not looking to hear I want to dance with somebody, but I'm looking to hear her explode the way I I picture her. And, you know, coming into this album, especially being her solo album uh, after a few years. You know, we, we talked about it earlier, but like they're pushing this out as her solo album um so yeah and again I dig the song i just the tempo and song selection so far hasn't put the album on its feet for me just yet hmm. interesting uh 
wonder I wonder if the next one will do that. Um <laughs> I because well it, it's a mellow song, but a very powerful one. It's our title track, My Love is Your Love. This was written and produced by Wyclef Jean of the Fugees and Jerry Duplis. Um slightly reggae influenced tune uh about togetherness and how we'll always be together. Um, my love is your love. Your love is my love. Uh, really lovely mid-tempo ballad. I've always um, really dug this song. I think it's uh, the best example of this kind of new sound. Uh, and it does give her some hip-hop cred. What's so interesting is on the single cover and the video, they so obviously styled her hair to look like Lauren Hell. Yeah, I, I dig this song, but and I'll get to my to my opinions of the song. I question whether or not Wyclef wrote this for Lauren Hill because the composition for me sounds like it could be a Lauren Hill song easily. Um, that aside, that conspiracy theories aside, because I tried to find out if that was true and I couldn't. Uh, I love her voice here. This is the Whitney I'm talking about. You're right. It is a downplayed sort of softer song but for me it hits um of course Wyclef is all over this his his writing and I mean I this like it's a reggae tune Bob Marley would be proud of and I think that's cool not only in that sense but more so for Whitney to be able to hit it like that I really enjoy this I am a hundred percent with you where this is a really really good example of this new sound one of the best examples on the album um if I didn't hear the first two tracks, I would say this fits perfectly. But this almost has too much weight for me, where the first two tracks are a little bit lost. Uh, I'm not saying this is an opener in any right. It is a perfect track three. Um, I'm glad that the album is starting to pick up in this sense of her power too here. Uh, even on this this downplayed song or, or this, this softer song. Yeah, no, the power absolutely comes through and it resonated with a ton of people it was released as a single first in europe in the summer of 99 it topped the european hot 100 number two in the uk and it was released in the u.s in the fall peaked at number four on the hot 100 and uh, it was her 22nd and final top 10 hit that is quite a run <laughs> i should know and i looked and i swear i remember an English premier soccer club like fan base singing this um, as like a pregame. And I can't remember what club and I can't find it, but I'm almost positive this used to be sang inside of the, the English premier league as like a, a club song. That would be awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll look deeper. I look for a bunch and I couldn't find it. And then I started to think, well, I am crazy, but I started to think I was losing it there. Um, but yeah, I I could I'm telling you it was. <laughs> if anybody knows, holler at me so I can put yeah. my brain to rest. <laughs> what whatever club it is, they had good taste. <laughs> that that is for sure. But uh we're gonna kind of continue in inspirational ballad mode, but um in well, the way we might expect a bit more from Whitney Houston. Uh the track number four is When You Believe. Um this song was written by Stephen Schwartz for the 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt. It's sung in the film, but in the 90s, it was pretty common for animated films to have pop versions of a single sent to the radio. It happened with The Lion King, Pocahontas, 
Aladdin, uh, you name it, they did it, basically. Yeah, Beauty, so, Beauty and the Beast, all of yeah. them. It was par for the course, and this was at the newer DreamWorks studio. This is an early film of theirs, um, before they really broke through with Shrek. But in this case, the pop version was produced by Babyface, and he introduced it to Whitney Houston, and Mariah Carey heard it from head of DreamWorks Stephen Schwartz, and it became a duet between the two ladies. Uh, and... Uh, Interest, of course, um, when Mariah Carey first debuted in 1990, she got a lot of comparisons to Whitney Houston, and the media just pitted them against each other, even though they'd never met, because they were some, um, somewhat similar singles, and uh, they were <laughs> somewhat similar singers, and uh, it probably wasn't helped a ton by the fact that Mariah Carey's debut did outperform I'm Your Baby Tonight. Um in every way. It did the numbers of the first two Whitney albums. Um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And it just was made into this big thing, but it didn't need to be. The ladies met and they actually hit it off and became friends. Though the media kept trying to say, no, they're, they're rivals, they're divas, they hate each other, which was just not true. Um, But... This is a song specifically about Moses, because that's what the film's about. And uh, it was really heavily promoted. It was performed at the Oscars by the two ladies. It was on the Oprah Winfrey show. Despite all this promotion and anticipation, it was kind of considered a flop. It made it to number 15 in the United States. Um, but it did a lot better in Europe. Made it into the top 10 in 19 countries there. Uh... Now, as for the song itself, I think this song, it tends to get a bad rap. It's like that was such a boring, schlocky song to put Whitney and Mariah together on. And I kind of see that. But at the same time, both ladies sound amazing here. And they sing the song with feeling. Like, I do believe that they feel what they're singing in a different way than and somebody else would. I do think it's special in that regard. And Babyface's production doesn't miss the mark. It always sounds good. At, like, it always sounds passable. And uh, I've always liked the song, even though it's not a favorite of everybody. It's probably not what people wanted as a duet from two supposed rivals, but I think it's a nice song. It's a nice song. Babyface got taken off for the Grammy on this, which sucked because I think what he did with the song was really good. Um, it's a great duet between these two singers, especially two alike voices. And I love both of their voices on this. It has a little bit of epicness. It doesn't fall flat, even though it's, it's an animated movie uh, theme here. If I'm being honest with myself, there are a little pieces in there that maybe feel a tiny bit forced, but the duet is great. It's a really well done duet. 
between them you know there's there's old wives tales or rumors of them recording this separately i've listened to this over and over again i don't care what producer you got on this there is no way these parts were recorded separately they were in here having fun you can feel it there's a time if i'm being honest with myself there's a tiny little bit of a versus feel when they ad lib at the end where it's almost like who can hit this and but i like that especially if you're gonna put mariah and whitney in the studio together like let them go let them have fun let them go at it um this is a cool track man and it, it fits right here uh you know it's it's not a flopper it's it's a neat little track yes i completely agree and it stands on its own outside of an animated film Agreed. I think that's really important here, and I'm not sure that's the case with every even more successful songs that were pop hits. I'm not sure every other one does that as well as this does. Agreed. But um, we, we are done with movie ballad. We are back to the dance floor with our next song, which is If I Told You That, the second Dark Child track. A bit more overtly dance than his first track. It's got a house piano thing going on that I really enjoy. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, she just needs a casual fling. She's just trying to have some fun. And uh, I really enjoy that. I think it's a fun tune. It's not quite as epic as you might expect a Whitney Houston house song to be. But I still enjoy I like it. I like the song. It's catchy, has a good feel going. Um, what's interesting is that this song was redone in 2000 for her greatest hits album as a duet with George Michael. It was supposed to be Michael Jackson, but he was unavailable. And uh, uh, I like that version okay, but the song definitely wasn't written as a duet. And you can tell, I think, when you hear them both do it, and I think they try to outrun each other a bit too much. Um, song didn't do anything in the States. It did okay in the Euro Europe. I think it's cool they did a video for it, because that's two icons right there. Yeah. I didn't understand why that happened. I mean, I understand that they wanted to do something new with this song, but I'm with you. It, it didn't... It wasn't too much of a innovation on the song in, in, in my eyes. But this song on its own on this album, I love it. I love how the beat hits. Yeah. I love the power behind it. Um, the placement is welcome. It's a welcome, bright moment so far in the record for me. I could see it in a different place to add a little bit of power, but I like it here. Um, again, I, I keep trying to find an opener for this album on this album. Um and it's not this one, but there's power behind this. This is a Whitney song, uh, and it jams. It really does. I I don't I don't think this could be the opener for the album, but this really has is very close potential wise uh, for the feeling and the drive that I'm looking for. I I sort of see a narrative flow in this album as far as where she's going with this character because she's saying this is outside of her real life. Um, so I, I'm I'm going to let that be the reason that this is number five. But yeah, I dig this song, man. I, I yeah. Straight up, this is one of the best compositions on the album musically for me. Yeah, no, it's a sick tune. Yeah. And um, we're going to now introduce another producer into the mix, actually, on um, track number six, which is In My Business. This was written by... Missy Elliott, KB Turner, and Spec Turner. 
um, first of two songs that this team wrote and produced. This one actually does feature Missy Elliott, but she actually doesn't have a solo verse, which is a huge missed opportunity. <laughs> um, huge. You're yeah. in my notes, but huge. <laughs> yeah, it's really not great, but uh, that she she should. But at the same time, I think this song is a powerful statement piece because the media is on Whitney about Bobby and drugs and all this kind of stuff. She just wants to know, why are they in my business? Like, this is ridiculous. So I think it is important that it's here. And it does most overtly include hip-hop elements, but it fits her well. It's not an unnatural fit. And uh, I think it's a testament to Whitney Houston's versatility. I really enjoyed this song, even though it could have been improved. Yeah, because I, I like this song, too. I'll start off there. And if, for new time, I don't even know if we've ever really gone over it on this podcast. I'm, I'm a huge Missy Elliott fan. Love Missy Elliott. I always have. That's my girl. Always excited to see her on tracks. Um, this feature is way missed opportunity though, because even there, there's, there's a solid foundation in this composition, but it ends up going long because this song, in my opinion, just turns into a hook fest for no reason. There's not really, there is a narrative, but it's just repeated hook. So, if you're going to take that length of a song. Why? Why? I'm so glad you said it, but I'm going to beat it into the ground right here. Why not put in a full verse from Missy Elliott? It makes no sense. It would have added to the narrative and the feeling and just not this repeated hook from both artists. Ugh, it's so maddening. I've listened to this one over and over again, trying to figure out why. Like, where's the silver lining playbook here? I, I, I can't get over it. I can't get over it. I like, I can't even imagine that both of these artists weren't like, why are you not doing a verse on this? Even a, it, it, like, I'm not saying I need Missy to sing. Let her do a straight no. rap verse on this. And it would have hit, in my opinion, you know? I mean, they could have had a single if she done a rap verse. Agreed. I don't understand. And I tried to find reasoning inside of media, uh, inside of production notes, nothing. It just, it's. It, like uh, I, it's I probably Clive Davis. If we're being maybe honest, so, maybe so. I had a conversation with myself where I was going back and forth. Like, is this a feature? Is this just like, what do you call this? Because it's almost like a, just a little blurb from Missy Elliott, you know, even though she's repeated over and over again, it just, it, again, it's, it's maddening. It is. Maddening. It really is. Like I said, could have had a single, and speaking of singles, we're going to talk about one of them <laughs> with track number seven, um, I, which is I Learned From the Best. This ballad was written by Diane Warren, a movie soundtrack ballad extraordinaire, writer of hits like How Do I Live and I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. And it was produced by David Foster, another producer extraordinaire who produced all the ballads on the Bodyguard soundtrack. So, of course, he's... Back on a Whitney Houston album. Um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> this is a breakup tune about how she learned from the best when it comes to breaking hearts because her heart was broken. I think that this song does really run the risk of sounding out of place here because we've gotten this newer sound and to have the Diane Warren, David Foster ballad, it's like, okay, this could be maybe 
not work here, but I think it does. Um, it's it does have a genuine soulful feel to it, especially with the saxophone. And I don't think that we necessarily got that all the way on other Diane Warren compositions. It's not quite as rangy as her other ballads, but I do still think it's really powerful because I feel like she's connecting with the song. She even said some of her early hits she just didn't really connect with. Um, they were just kind of given for her to sing, like, uh, where do broken hearts go? This, she's feeling that. She really, like, you can tell she knows a thing or two about heartbreak here. Um, it was the fifth and final single, which makes sense. It's a pretty winning combination. Warren was still definitely writing hits. Uh, it peaked at 27 in the U.S., her um, final top 40 hit, actually. Um, did top the charts in Poland and Romania. I wish the song had done a bit better. I think this is a pretty underrated ballad in the Whitney Houston canon. I agree. I agree. I, I'm i almost on, well, you said it did work, but you were going to like, it almost doesn't fit the feel here. I'll go flip side on it and say that this was another bright shining moment where I got a little bit of older sound Whitney and I dug that. Um, I like the long narrative here. I really enjoy it. It was one of her most full narratives, in my opinion, on the album. The composition is polished. The horns, it almost has a live band feel uh, to it for me. The, if I nitpick the early vocals that like super early vocals were a bit a little bit mismatched in production but the song balances out by earlier than the midpoint and it, it's a great song I really do enjoy this one and I'm with you it is uh it's an underrated one most definitely it's it's songs like this on this album that you're like okay she's still got the chops where I feel like a lot of the lost um the lost shots or the missed opportunities or even, you know, the early goings on in this album for me, I feel like a lot of that. I want to think that a lot of that came inside of production and inside of too many hands in the pot where, you know, rather than Whitney just getting in there and belting things out. But by this point in the album, we're getting a full Whitney and, and I'm loving it. Yeah, we definitely are. But our next song actually is going to show a different side of Whitney Houston that we haven't gotten before. Uh, it's her first ever full-on slow jam. Um, oh, yeah. Second song written by Missy Elliott's team. She's not featured on it. Uh, this has been called the sexiest song Whitney Houston ever did because it's about getting pleasured by her man. That's the song. Um, and I can see that. I like the song. It overstays its welcome big time. This song is almost seven minutes long, and it's just a really long outro. It doesn't even have a live band feel to it that you could get swept up in it. Um, this song needs to be at least two minutes shorter. That's it, it could be a highlight if it were, but it's not because it just does not need to be as long as it is. I've said that about a few songs on this a podcast but this one is like one of the top five doesn't need to be as long as it is out of all the songs we've ever done on this show yeah i couldn't agree with you more i like the story here i like the it's another elongated narrative that i can get behind but why is this song so long i mean i'm bored by four minutes and you said two minutes over it's it's right there i'm with you uh 
I, even in this era, it was very commonplace, especially inside of hip hop albums, to have these long instrumentals or long elongated outro instrumentals because it gave the listeners and the people with the albums one something to sample and two something to freestyle over in this case we're on a whitney houston album this isn't in my opinion nobody's taking this to freestyle over or do whatever it it runs way too long with editing this could have been a shining diamond but unfortunately it's marred by its length i'm 100 percent with you yeah and no one sampled or freestyled that it, it just it makes no sense <laughs> no not at all. But uh, fortunately, that it but once it finally ends, we are actually on to another song. Felt like I had to wait forever to get to track nine, but we did. And that is Get It Back, the final Dark Child joint. Um, it's just about missing a lover. And uh, the, the weirdest thing about this song is there is very clearly a background vocalist who she's doing a call and response kind of thing with, I enjoy it. I do not know who this background vocalist is. On In the liner notes, Whitney Houston is credited as being the backing vocals. And it's not her. It sounds She sounds like Brandy. I'm not quite sure if it is actually Brandy. Um, please, somebody, if you know for sure who is the backup singer on this track, I really would love to know. It's my... Actually, probably my top burning question about this whole album. I do enjoy the song. It's a catchy tune. Dark Child can make catchy tunes in his sleep. They He has a distinct style and it works really well. All his songs are earworms. And this is probably the weakest of his songs and it's still maddeningly catchy. I like the story here. I really do. Cool story. I love, I think she has a great commanding performance in this one. Mm-hmm. This composition for me is tough, man. This composition is like a mashup of every beat from this era. And for me, it gets really confused inside of it. Whitney carries it. But I feel like a more polished beat and track here would have added a lot. Hot tea take on this one. This is a fake-ass Timberland beat. And it it angers me because it's just like a watered-down like mashup of a bunch of too many ideas here. Uh, this is another one that I think with some editing could have been up there. Maybe even single-worthy. But hot tea take, fake-ass Timberland beat on this one. Sorry, Dark Child. I mean, you could definitely tell Dark Child was influenced by Timberland. So much of his style comes from that. Um, but it is the last that we're seeing of him on the album. That's his last tune. We're, we're now on to, we're, we're going to be in full ballad mode for a bit now, with uh, starting with track 10, which is Until You Come Back, written by Babyface and his collaborator, Daryl Simmons. Uh, you talked about the live band feel of I Learned From The Best. I feel this is very live band and classic soul. I mean, Even the title um, reminds you of an Aretha Franklin song that was written by Stevie Wonder, so it's pure throwback soul here and i love it i think it's a very classy tune i think it's really well layered in its sound and she's doing her own thing while also channeling those classic soul divas like aretha franklin and patty labelle she just really brings it here and 
it's a true highlight of this album. And that track 10, I'm really happy to hear it. Uh, this is a Whitney Houston ballad that you want to hear. Awesome song. I'm a hundred with you, man. It hits right on the get with a just boom, whole orchestra, a whole band, and then soft Whitney. I have goosebumps right now. Whitney comes in, does her thing. In my notes, I got classic Whitney, all caps with exclamations. First notes as I was listening to it. I love this. I wish... <laughs> This might be selfish on my part, but I wish there was more of this on the album. I know we're going for a, a new sound and whatnot, but this is this is that Whitney Houston that I love. Uh, and I really love what she did here. Uh, powerful, powerful stuff. This, we talk about long, way too long on Oh Yes, but this five minutes flew, flew by uh, as it should. This is this is the jam piece, man. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, literal goosebumps <laughs> and yeah. I, I'm not even playing the song right now yeah. like, this is this is Whitney to me that this is the voice in full force yeah man yes and we are now going to do another ballad um this one is I Bow Out written by Diane Warren produced by Babyface uh this one it's kind of a precursor to Rihanna's Take a Bow in a lot of ways like I Bow Out I'm done I, I wonder if uh like Stargate heard this song and thought about it when writing that for Rihanna. I mean, we got another kind of kiss off track at the beginning with uh, it's not right, but it's okay. This is that in ballad form. I think it's well done. I don't like how it's sequenced here. I don't think it should be in between two other ballads because they just run into each other. And the last one was so powerful that this one just feels really sedate by comparison and when you listen to it on its own it's actually a pretty solid tune it just yep. doesn't stand the chance when it's run in like this it should be at a different place here we're, we're running together hard on this album babyface knows how to produce for whitney you by these two tracks alone but here we go second note do not clump up these songs. Don't clump them up. It, it 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 doesn't fit here. If this was in the start of the album, I think it would have been great. It these are these bright shining moments. Even this one has I'm, I'm nitpicking a bit. It has a little bit of a subpar beat. I feel like that's because it came right after uh, or or where it is on the album. Uh, and you know I'm not big on the fade outs, but this song still hits harder than most of the songs on this album. Yeah, you know, I it, think it, it hits. It does. Yeah, yeah. Just don't clump up the babyface stuff. Spread it out because he's clearly winning for me. And my, I shouldn't say clearly. In my opinion, he's winning as far as producers getting the Whitney sound on this album. And we're all clumped up at the end here. Yeah, and he had a lot of experience working with her. They started working together on "I'm Your Baby Tonight," and he did all of the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, they clearly had a really strong uh, collaboration going. And uh, it's always a pleasure to hear them. And, uh, but you're right. And I think that this really becomes clear with our next song, why we can't have this all together. This is a, you'll never stand alone, another worn and baby face tune. And I just find it a very ironic title. This song doesn't really stand alone, in part because of the placement on the album, but 
I also do have to say the previous two ballads were more dynamic and it's got an inspirational kind of thing going on, but we got that already with When You Believe and there's just no competing with that when it comes to the inspiration because that was a duet with Mariah Carey. I mean, not that Whitney can't do it on her own, but in terms of Whitney ballads that hit with that message, this is no greatest love of all. Uh, and we we have that benchmark at this point. This one does fall flat by comparison to that, but a lot of it is just the placement. It shouldn't be all together. Definitely not all together. This is nowhere near in my opinion a closer for a whitney houston album like maybe this could have shined a little bit somewhere else but this is not the way for this album to go out uh it's it really to coin a phrase that we like to use it really doesn't stick the landing especially as the closer here um yeah i it falls flat for me i I, I do not dig this track. I'll go gun to the head on this one. This oh, is my least here. favorite track. Yeah. It, it's definitely my least favorite. Um, I, I, I mean, honestly, I'm giving Silver Lining on like trying to find a narrative run in this album. And there are places, but like I, I have a huge problem with the the sequencing of this album, period. But I really do at the end is where yeah. it really is an issue for me. Um, but the good news is, uh, even though this is the closing track, it's not really, because this is the 90s and there's a hidden track on this album. And uh, it's it's not a joke of a hidden track. Some of them can be just kind of silly throwaways. No, this has some big guns on it, actually. So our hidden track is I Was Made to Love Him. This is a gender reverse cover of a Stevie Wonder hit. He wrote it with his mother, Lula Mae Hardaway, and Motown writers Sylvia Moy and Henry Cosby, not related to Bill Cosby. Um, it's produced by Lauren Hill. And at this point in time, Whitney Houston did comment on Hill's professionalism. She even presented her Grammy of the um, Grammy for Album of the Year for Miseducation in 1999. Uh this song is funky. That that's really it. She Whitney just lets it rip on this one. And I like the lyrics are changed just a bit to reflect her own upbringing like in Newark cuz that's where she's from. There's still a harmonica in there. You got to have that on the Stevie Wonder cover. I think it's retro and modern at the same time and I it's brilliant in my opinion. Yeah. What the hell? Mm, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why is this a hidden track? Why Should is this not. a hidden track? Here's the deal. You put Never Stand Alone as a hidden track, okay? I'm not saying I was made to love him as a closer. I'll go out on a limb and say pop until you come back as a closer and let it go out on a banger. But this one is almost a perfectly done song. Uh, it, it would have really hit and gave some body to this uh, some more body to this album inside of some of the doldrums in this album uh the vocal work here is great check the length on the ad libs a little bit but then again if if they thought this was going to be a hidden track i guess i'm giving silver line and playbook to that but this has a place on the album and not just because i'm a diehard 
Lauren Hill fan, you know, like this has a place on the album. This is not a hidden track in any reach for me. Um, I this you want to talk about missed opportunities. I think a bunch of people probably didn't even get to hear this song, you know, uh, as a hidden track. Uh, this is this is should have been on the album. I can, I will say that a million times, so I'll stop here. But I mean, it does. You don't have to wait long for it on the CD. You don't. Heard. Well, it, there you go. <laughs> it does go right into it, so people have heard this, and heard. they should have heard it. <laughs> but it's not a hidden track. It's too good to be. Uh, definitely seek it out. Absolutely, a highlight of this body of work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And, uh, wow, there we have it. My Love is Your Love, first ever Whitney Houston album we've ever covered on the show. Yeah, Whitney, my yeah. girl. Yeah, one of the greats, one of the greats. Um, What's your grade for this album? How's it stack up? Here's the tough part for me about this album, and I hate to start it off that way. I love her so much. I have a really tough time with the sequencing of this album. There are shining moments here. There are Whitney moments here that I love. But as far as a full album, it really falls short on the way it's stacked up. Uh, that added with more than enough missteps on this album for me. Um, and, and that Missy Elliott missed opportunity. It's tough, but I'm giving this one a C+. It hurts me to give it a C plus, but I, I got to be honest and fair on this one. And this, it just doesn't, it doesn't hit for me. Correct. I'm on the other side. I, uh, I do think this album could be sequenced better. I completely agree with you on that. For me, there aren't that many missteps though. There's stuff that could be better, but there's not much. There's really isn't too much that completely falls flat for me. It's, um, and I think it's a strong album from her. And I always enjoy Whitney Houston, too. Maybe that's just a preference for me. I just... And I do think she successfully adapted to the pop and R&B landscape of the late 90s. I have to give her credit where credit's due for that. Because it was easier said than done. It just... And I think it was rather effortless. And I'm going to give this... An A minus. See where you're at on effortless for her. And I do think that she succeeded a little bit in that new sound inside of this RB hip hop. For me, again, I go back to what I was stating before. A lot of this, I have to blame on production. A lot of this, I it, it it's almost half-assed attempt on, on uh, attempts on a couple of songs here as far as composition goes. Uh, that C plus is not denoting of her voice and of her caliber, but more so of this album as a whole. Yeah, I could, and I see where you're coming from, but I 
she's a material elevator, in my opinion. She Her. is somebody who a song can be mediocre in the hands of one and it won't be in Whitney Houston. And I think that's true out of all of her albums. Heard. She just was that special person. And I think she still would be if she were still here. Uh, I wish she was. I think she should still be here. Okay. Um, definitely gone too soon. But uh, on a more positive note, what is your favorite song on the album? This might speak to why I don't, really relate with this album hardcore but until you come back is is my number one song on this album it's it's a good one it's a good one i'm gonna go with my love is your love heard it's a good one just what a beautiful song her daughter's even featured on it It, that melts my heart every time when i hear little bobby christina say sing mommy (laughs) can't go wrong with it can't you can't But yeah, there we have it. My love is your love. Your love is my love. It would take an eternity to break us from doing this podcast. (laughs) We we hope you enjoyed this for sure. And now I have one final pick, even though uh, we did have a week off. But we we got our show on YouTube during that time. So that's what's important there. It was not no activity. But I have one more pick. And... This one, I know you, Corey, do not. I'll I'll be surprised if you know any of the songs on this album. <laughs> a bit of a dark horse, um, okay. but a cult favorite. Uh, I, I like a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, I am what you would call a poptimist at heart. I love those big, bright pop songs that just lift you up, but I love it when it can be real, too. And... Uh, the album that we're going to discuss manages to put all of that into one. It's a cult favorite for a reason. It is Carly Ray Jepsen's 2015 album, Emotion. All right. I have yeah. no idea. No. <laughs> Get at it. Right. I like them, man. I like to hear stuff that I've never heard before, so yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> this is brand new, and... Uh, Many of you, if you're listening, you might just know her as, oh, the Call Me Maybe lady, which she is. (laughs) But there is more going on than we realize, and many critics and pop heads noticed it with this beautiful album that she gave us almost a decade ago now. Uh, I have some memories of the time, too. I'm really excited to dive into it. And... uh, Go down the cult road a bit. Is it the Call Me Maybe album? No. Okay. It Even is better. not. Even better. All right, cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's what's so fun about it. Uh, you get elements of that, but it takes you on a ride too. And that's what I enjoy about it. So I'm really excited for that. And, uh, well, you, you won't have to call us, maybe, when we're here next week for you. Take care of yourselves, everyone. Peace!